And thank you, sis. Wasn't that delightful? Almost felt like having her play it one more time. I probably would have fallen asleep. It was so relaxing. It was a blessing. People uh, never said thank you when I played piano. Mrs. Wilkins threatened to kick me out after the first year if I didn't behave. But uh, appreciate the talent and the gift God has given you. Good evening, church family. Amen. A blessing to have you. Blessing to have visitors as well. We really appreciate Sister Akers being here. Unfortunately, she brought her husband with her too. But... Yeah, amen, brother. A delight to see you. I told my wife as you walked up, I said, he looks younger. And I don't know why. I just, you know. So there's your compliment, brother. All right. And, and if you didn't give anything, we'll pass the plates again. You can get back to me on that. Oh, great to have everybody tonight. Uh, very, very special thank you for your hospitality. Uh, I want to say a very special thank you to Brother Tony and Sister Jennifer for a wonderful, wonderful meal. And your entertaining three children. They're just such a delight. And uh, what's that? No, you're not in the mix, are you? Okay. You want to be in that family? You do want to be in that family. Where are your parents, son? <laughs> Here they come to get you. <laughs> So thank you. Wonderful time. Delightful. We really, really enjoyed it and appreciate the, the fellowship. I tell my wife a lot of times as we travel, uh, there are times as we meet families, and we'll say this. We'll have our little pillow talk at night, and I'll say to her, you know, if I was pastoring again, I'd want 100 families just like that in my church. And I don't mean to be big, but we said that about you guys. You guys are a delight. I know, sis, we know the vinegar that's in your greens, but I'm still saying you guys were delightful, and we just say appreciate it very, very much. And uh, we really, really enjoyed the fellowship. So thank you very much. Where's Brother Drake? He lent me Old Blue and then he bailed on me. Anybody ever driven that truck? My, my, my. I, le I went to Starbucks this morning. I left the truck, walked to Starbucks. As I left, I closed the door, said, make sure you don't lock it, because if you lock it, you'll never get back in. He doesn't have a key to get in there. And I looked, and I said, look at that, old blue. That's what I said. Well, I came back walking in from the other side, and I couldn't find the truck, because one side's blue and the other side's gray. And so I said, I said, well, it was light out when I left. I said, I thought I called that old blue. And then I came around... Oh, there's blue, all right, gray, rusty. I mean, man, that's a man's truck, I'm telling you. And you can park that anywhere you want. Somebody door dings you, who cares? They get out of your way. If you get in an accident, it'll look better after you, you wreck the thing, I'm telling you. I love that truck. You drive with confidence in that thing. Don't worry about it, man. So hopefully Drake will come. I'd like to personally thank him uh, for the use of old blue, gray, black and blue, whatever you want to call it. That was great. And a very, very great delight. I want to read something to you that's somewhat humorous. How many of you have been to Alaska before? All right. How many of you have ever wanted to visit Alaska? And that's pretty common. Uh, most of the time I recommend going up in the summertime, uh, which is usually about three or four days, and the rest of the time. <laughs> but uh, we actually go up to 100 degrees in the summertime. Uh, there are places that go that warm, and some people don't know that. Uh, great fishing. Don't tell me about your fishing here. That never impresses me. Uh, we have incredible fishing up there, and we are the largest state in the Union. Texas is the second largest state of the Union. 
We love to tell them Texans that. And if you cut Alaska in half, Texas is the third largest state of the union. We are two and a half times the size of Texas. We are a huge state, 700,000 people. But we do have some game up there that can hurt you. And so for those of you who said we'd love to go to Alaska, you may see the following sign posted. It says, Notice to all campers and hikers, tourists in Alaska are advised to wear tiny bells on their clothing when hiking in bear country. The bells worn away most bear. Tourists are also cautioned to watch the ground along the trail, paying particular attention to bear droppings in order to be forewarned of the presence of grizzly bear. They're your most dangerous. One can identify a grizzly dropping because it has tiny bells in it. (laughs) (laughs) If you didn't get that laugh anyhow, talk to me afterwards. I'll share with you the punchline or come visit us in Alaska. We'll introduce you to the food chain and everything that we have up there. And uh, just the summers from Alaska, we're glad to be here. Thank you for your hospitality. And uh, it's our prayer. We'll be a help to you this week. Take your Bibles and let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter number 1. And once you find your place, if you're able to stand, stand with me. And I'll know that you have it. If you are a visitor or a guest, you're very special to us tonight. We appreciate you coming. We want to publicly say thank you for being a part of our services tonight. Colossians chapter 1. I want to begin reading in verse number 9. Listen to the Spirit of God through Paul speaking here to the church at Colossae. Colossians 1.9, he says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with a knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Notice verse 10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. I draw your attention to verse number nine. The Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul desires these people to be filled with a very precious commodity. Listen to it again. He says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will, speaking of the will of God, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I'd like to begin a series of thoughts tonight drawn from that springboard verse that I've simply entitled, Knowing and Finding God's Will. For your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for the very, very great privilege we have to call you our Father. Lord, we thank you tonight that the blood of Calvary and the sacrifice of your Son, his death, burial, and resurrection alone is what has provided us this wonderful ability to not simply refer to you and call upon you as our God, but our Father. And so tonight, we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you would bless our time together. As we consider not only your heart, but, Father, your desires of your heart toward us and what it is you desire for us, may tonight we as your people be filled with a knowledge of your will for our lives. And, Father, perchance there's someone outside of the household of faith tonight. Lord, may tonight they see their need for Christ alone through faith alone to enter into your family and be saved. Blessed tonight, I pray you'd empty me of myself 
I pray you'd cleanse me of any sin that may hinder the service. Fill me with your spirit, and may your son receive the glory tonight for all that's said and done. For we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For this cause we also, since today we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And a desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You know, as we begin this series of thoughts tonight, I don't know about you, but I was struck by the request that Paul lifted to his God. And notice here that Paul did not sell out cheaply as he expressed his desire for these people to be filled with a commodity. Do you notice with me as he as he prays and as the Spirit of God records his heart here, did you notice that he doesn't pray for them to be filled with material blessings? His prayer for them is not that they're filled with happiness or even financial prosperity, but he goes to a higher plane in desiring them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will for their lives. I want to say tonight, that's the need of the hour today. Could I say, first of all, that's the need of the hour in our homes. We as parents, our greatest desire should not necessarily be that our children had it easier than we did. I want to remind you, the struggle of life builds character. And sometimes well-meaning parents, in their scramble to make it easier for the children, unknowingly and unwittingly, raise a generation of spoiled brats that think everybody owes them everything, including God. I'm not saying be harsh for harsh sake, but I'm saying we as parents ought to go to a higher level than simply hoping they're filled with financial prosperity, have a good job, are personally happy. But our desire as parents for our children should be that they're filled with the knowledge of God's will for their lives. That's not only the needed hour in our homes tonight, that's the needed hour in our churches. Those of us that handle the Word of God and minister, even tonight, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that my greatest desire for you is not that I make you happy, is not that I fill, fill you with joy, but my greatest desire is somehow I communicate to you God's heart and His desire for your life, that you're filled with the knowledge of His will, not someone else's. And that's the need of the hour tonight in America. Men and women, boys and girls across our nation are filled with everything today except the knowledge of God's will for their lives. George Truitt, speaking of the importance of the will of God, said this. He said, to know the will of God is mankind's greatest knowledge. To find the will of God is mankind's greatest discovery. But to do the will of God, that is mankind's greatest achievement. And your my Savior said himself in the book of John, he said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And your my eternity hinges upon a Savior who came not to do his will, but the will of the Father. As we approach this thought, I suppose the question I could ask tonight and Maybe even out there tonight, one of you is asking, well, where am I to find God's will for my life? How am I a mere mortal to figure out not only who he is, but what he wants for me? I've heard people recommend many different avenues and places to find God's will. I've had people say, you know, if you want to figure out who God is and what he wants for you, go out in creation. And there under the canopy of stars and the silence of the evenings, you stare out at the vastness of the universe. Whoever this God is, he'll speak to your heart and he'll communicate to you what he wants for your life. I'm going to tell you something. You're going to figure out somebody pretty big put this mud ball together. But you'll never figure out what he wants for your life simply going out into creation. 
Others would say, well, go get educated, man. Go to the institutions of higher learning, and there you're going to figure out, as you study all the philosophies, who God is and what he wants for you. I've been to the universities across America. That's probably the last place you'll find God's will for your life. Still others say, let your conscience be your guide. Look inside the inner self. But even yesterday, we saw our heart is desperately wicked, and we don't even know it. That's not where you'll find God's will for your life. So the question still remains, where are you to find God's will? The answer is simply this. You'll find God's will in God's word. This is God's divine revelation of himself. Breathed by the creator of this universe. That bridges the gap between immortal and mortal. And communicates to us not only who he is. But what he desires for us. Boy, I've had people minimize that. I've had people say, I can't be that simple. The late Harry Ironsides was fond of sharing a story of a young curate in the Church of England who was greatly helped in his understanding of the Scriptures by frequent conversations that he had with an uneducated cobbler who was nevertheless very well acquainted with the Word of God. On one occasion when a friend of his, a young theologian, was visiting him, he mentioned this remarkable knowledge of the Bible that the humble cobbler possessed. <laughs> the young theologian, in a spirit of pride expressed a desire to meet this fellow, saying he felt sure he could ask some questions which he would be quite unable to answer. And so upon being introduced to the man in his little shop, the theologian put the following question to him. He said, Sir, can you tell me what the Urim and the Thummim were? Well, the cobbler replied, Son, I don't know exactly. I understand the words apply to something that was on the breastplate of the high priest. I know the words mean lights and perfection, and that through the Urim and the Thummim, the high priest was able to discern the mind of the Lord. But young man, I find I can get the mind of the Lord by just changing two letters. I take this blessed book, and by using and thumbing, I get the mind of the Lord that way. <laughs> you want to figure out who God is tonight? You want to figure out how he operates and how he thinks? Not what your heart is, but what his heart is. You'll find all of that. All of him and all of his will for your life in his word. Let me say this. The closer you get to that book and the more you read it, the more you'll understand who he is. But the further you get from this book, the further you'll understand his will for your life. Now, I'm a farm boy from Minnesota. I like things simple. You're talking about this pie contest and you know, food-eating contest. Boy, you judges, what a tough one. But I like the cookies on the bottom shelf, amen? And there are places in your Bible where God just bears his heart and says, here's something I want or don't want for you. Let's look at one of them tonight. Second Peter chapter 3, if you go there with me. God's first great desire. God's first great desire. Second Peter chapter 3. Look at this verse. We see God's first great desire noted here in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, listen to this, not willing. You could say it this way, not wanting. You could say it a third way, not desiring, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Go to 1 Timothy with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and look at a parallel verse that shows us the heart of our God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, this particular chapter begins by encouraging believers to pray for leadership. 
to pray for those in authority, political leadership, and so forth. And notice it says, following that request to pray for kings and those in authority in verse 2, look in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3. He says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Listen to this. Who will have. Say it this way. Who wants to have. Who desires to have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. You know, verses like these and many others just bear the heart of God and show us His very first great desire. You know what it is? God doesn't want you to perish. God wants you to have everlasting life. His first great desire for you is salvation. But we need to be careful here because I've been watching this across America. Jesus is being reconstituted and represented as a Savior from something else. Listen, God's first good desire for you tonight is salvation. He wants to save you from your sin. Amen? I, I mean to say this very clearly. God's first great desire for you tonight is not happiness. That's not God's first great desire. God's first great desire for you tonight is not health. You with me? Hey, do you think there's, do you believe in faith healing? Sure, I got no time for faith healers though. That's a horse and pony show. I got no time for that junk. I mean that with all my heart. They, they don't believe what they preach. They really believe what they preach. They tell you to send 20 bucks and they'll get 100. Uh, or you send them 20 and they'll get 100. You'll get 100. If they really believed it, they'd ask, they'd send you the 20 so they could get the 100. Amen. They really don't believe what they're saying. I believe in faith healing. I've seen God heal people. But i got no time for faith healers. God's first great desire isn't health. God's first great desire for you is not that you're healthy, wealthy, and wise. God's first great desire is salvation. He wants to save you from your sin. We see Jesus Christ being represented as a life improver today. You just trust him to help your messed up marriage. He'll help your emotional problems. He'll help your health problems. You all with me? Now, let me tell you something. He will do that when you get saved. There's some benefits that come with salvation, but that's not why he came and died. Matthew 1 says, Jesus came and died to save his people from their sins. God's first great desire for you tonight is salvation. He wants to save and rescue you from your sin. You say, but preacher, I need God to help my marriage. I need God to help my financial problems. I need God to help my emotional problems. No, you need Jesus to save you from your sin. I've had people say to me, but I thought Jesus came to bless me. He did. Watch this. Go to Acts chapter 3 tonight. In Acts chapter 3, look with me in verse number 26. In Acts chapter 3, in verse number 26, notice how God sent and superintended for Jesus Christ to be sent to bless us. Acts 3, in verse 26, the Bible says, Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you. There it is. But how? In turning away every one of you from his Iniquities, that's another word for sin. You know, tonight God sent his son to bless you. And the greatest way he can bless you is to save you from your sin. Your greatest need tonight is spiritual, not financial, not emotional, not physical, and not marital. It's spiritual. And your greatest problem was sin, and Jesus came to take care of that problem. Look in Acts chapter 4 just across the page and look at the urgency of this thought here. In Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12, God's first great desire tonight for you and me is salvation. Look what's said in Acts 4.12. The apostles are speaking here and Peter and John and listen to, the, to, to what they say. They say, said this in Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation 
in any other. Speaking of Jesus Christ, I want to say tonight, there's no salvation in Buddha. You all with me? Who claimed that? Jesus did. There's no salvation tonight in Muhammad. There's no salvation in Allah. There's only one who saves. There's only one who has the keys of death and hell. His name is Jesus Christ. And the apostles are preaching him here and they're saying, neither is there salvation in any other. There's nobody else that can save you from your sin and rescue you from the grave and give you a home called heaven. It says, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, listen to this, whereby we must be saved. You just sense that urgency. It's like the Spirit of God saying, you've got to be born again. You've got to be saved. You've got to be saved. There's this urgency in that thought from the heart of God. remember years ago, we were on the road with all six of our children. I had a tent ministry that would seat up to 300 and preached everywhere from courthouse lawns to Indian reservations. And we were on the reservation in Yakima. It was July, I think it was 4th of July weekend, preaching in Yakima, Washington, Indian Reservation. You just got the picture, man. It's about 100 degrees by 8.30 in the morning. People say, what in the world do you preach on when it's that hot? I just preach on hell, man. Everybody feels it. They just feel it. The sermon illustration just drips with feeling. And uh, we were right kitty corner from the bar, and we were on the res, as we call it, locked down, keeping the kids close, but preaching and loving on those people. And I was preaching with an Indian preacher who'd gotten saved. His name is Glenn Homan. I don't know if you know Brother Glenn Homan, but Brother Glenn, Indian, gotten saved in Lower Valley Indian Baptist Church. And that night under our tent, as we had the uh, people under the tent, Glenn was my setup man. He was the song leader. He got everybody prepped for the service. My daughter Kimberly was playing the clavinova. Our kids would be singing. And I'll never forget that night. We sang a song that was a familiar song entitled, The Old Account Was Settled. You ever heard that song? Talks about all your sins that are unforgiven, but one day you trust Jesus as your Savior, and that old account gets settled long ago. His righteousness gets in your account, and your sin gets put to his account, and the sin debt's paid in full for all time and eternity. And that chorus says, the old account was settled long ago. And so we sang a verse. We sang the chorus. And then he turned to my daughter. He said, keep tickling them ivory, sis. Keep playing. And he said, somebody shout out the month and year. Raise your hand and shout the month and year your old account got settled when you got saved. And now you know you're going to heaven. Somebody raised their hand and said, November 19, uh, you know, 54. He said, praise the Lord. Somebody else shout out the month and year. Another hand. September 77, you know. And hands began to go up and shout out the month and year that the individual got saved. He said, praise the Lord. He said, let's sing another verse. And then we sang another verse. And after that verse and chorus, he said, somebody else. And all through that song, after every chorus, before he started the next verse, well, my daughter played through the song. He'd give people a chance to shout out the month and year their old account got settled and they got saved. I wonder tonight if we did that. We just chose to play that song and just give everybody here a chance to testify of the day they got saved. The old account got settled. They passed from death unto life. And heaven is not a hope-so, it's a no-so destination. Would I see your hand go up? Would I hear your lips testify? If not, why not? In all your living, in all your searching, in all your worrying about what's important, you blew past the most important desire God has for you. You missed salvation. You see, tonight, I don't know you all by name. I don't know your ages, and I really 
don't know your passions in life and some maybe not even you're standing with the Lord but there's one thing I know about every one of you God doesn't want you to perish God wants you to have everlasting life and he sent his son to prove it you realize tonight when you and I leave this building Christian no one's a stranger up there we know something about everybody we meet we know God wants to see them saved what a thought I've had people say to me, but preacher, you don't understand. If God desires everybody to go to heaven, then why do some people still go to hell? The answer is very clear. Because they refuse the payment for their sin. Look in John, the book of John, chapter 1. You see tonight, clearly in the word of God, God's first great desire for you and for me is salvation. He doesn't want us to perish. He wants us to have everlasting life. And notice in John, chapter 1, in verse number 10. It explains to us exactly how people miss out on heaven. Why it is they, and I'll say it this way, force God to deposit them in a place he never even created for them. Notice in John 1 and verse 10, the Bible says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. The he there is Jesus Christ. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. The context is the Jew. But notice verse 12. Look at the expansion of the invitation. But as many as received him... To them gave he power, authority to become the sons of God. How do you receive him? Even to them that believe on, hope in, trust only in his name. Could I make it clear tonight? No one goes to hell because of God. People go to hell in spite of God. You know tonight, for you to go to hell, you're going to have to walk across what I just preached. You know tonight, for, for, if you're here tonight and you're without Jesus Christ, you're going to have to walk across the prayers of loved ones to go to hell. You're going to have to walk across an empty tomb, the only one that's there, a Savior so powerful death couldn't even keep him. You're going to have to walk across preaching the Word of God, the Spirit of God that taps your conscience and says you've got sin that needs settled, and creation that screams there's a Creator that wants you to be with Him. You're going to have to spit on a whole bunch of stuff tonight to go to hell. But our God gave you free will, and if you choose to, if you miss heaven, there's only one other place. It's called hell. See, God does love you tonight. Jesus is living proof of that love. Look in Romans chapter 5, and look at the heart of God so clearly shown here in Romans chapter 5. As we come into Romans chapter 5, I find in the book of Romans this short little text Four types of people that Jesus died for. Don't miss this tonight. This is important. God's first great desire for you is salvation. He wants to save you from your sin. He wants to save you from your disobedience and your offenses toward his Father. Somebody once said so wisely, Jesus doesn't just save you to God. He saves you from God. And the holy nature that will chew us up for eternity if we don't have a shield and a payment for our sin. Notice Romans chapter 5, verse number 6. Four types of people Jesus died for. Number one, it says in Romans 5, 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the, what's the word? Ungodly. You ought to underline that word. If you look at my Bible, it's underlined. There's the first type of people Jesus died for, ungodly people. People against God, not for him. Verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. He appear venture for a good man, some would even dare to die. The inference is he died for unrighteous people in verse 7. Verse 8, but God commendeth, which means proved his love toward us, in that while we were yet, there's the third one, sinners. Christ died for us. 
much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Look at verse 10. For if when we were, what? Enemies. You know, tonight as you read Romans chapter 5, you find four people Jesus died for. He died for ungodly, unrighteous, sinful enemies of God. That's who he died for. I've actually met people that have looked at me as I've begun to deal with them with the law and explain to them their need for a Savior. I've had them actually look at me and say, well, preacher, I'm really not that ungodly. I mean, I have my flaws, but I wouldn't call myself unrighteous. I certainly wouldn't call myself a sinner. And I don't think I'm an enemy of God. I think I've always been his friend. Listen, if that's your assessment of yourself tonight, I've got bad news for you. Jesus never died for you. See, because you fail to recognize who you are, it's as if he never came. His sacrifice does you no good. But if, on the other hand, as you review your life, the things you've said, the things you've thought, the things you've done, the places you've been, just everything about your nature, and you come to the conclusion, man, I am. I really am ungodly. And I'm unrighteous. And I am a sinner. I've broken his laws. I've not kept them things. And as such, I've made myself an enemy of his. Then I got good news for you. Jesus died for you. And if you were like I was as an 18-year-old boy on my way to the Naval Academy, when I came to the conclusion, that was me. I remember thinking, why would God send somebody so good for somebody so bad? The answer is simple. He doesn't want you to perish he wants you to trust him and have everlasting life. Could you tell me tonight about the day this great desire of God's was fulfilled in your life? You were saved, set free, and heaven's now your home. If not, why not? That's his first great desire for you and me. But as we consider this, go to Romans 10. I want to turn the corner here. In Romans chapter 10, notice the Apostle Paul. Saul becomes Paul. He meets this Jesus Christ whom he persecuted. He gets saved. And suddenly after salvation, suddenly God's will becomes his will. Look at what he says in Romans 10 and verse 1. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is this, that they might be what? Saved. He said, I want my people rescued. Now, now that I've been rescued, I want them rescued too. And suddenly when Paul becomes a Christian, the will of his father becomes his will as well. He has a heart for those people also. I remember years ago when I was in the Corps, I was stationed over in Washington State at Whidbey Island with a Navy squadron as a Marine augment team. I worked on EA-6B Prowlers. I was an avionics comm nav guy, and I worked on those jets, and I actually flew in them as well. And twice a year, we'd go down off the coast of California, and we'd CQ our pilots, carrier qualum. These were Pensacola aviators, young lieutenants and Butterbar Louis and, and ensigns coming out of the Navy Marine Corps, and they had to go ahead and learn how to take off and land on aircraft carriers with our type jet. They had to do 10-day traps and five-night traps. That's called the landing. And for about 10 days, we keep those jets flying while the aviators figured out how to take off and land on a flat top. 
I remember I always applied for the night shift, it was two 12-hour shifts, and I always went on work uh, on shift at 8 o'clock at night. And by 1 in the morning, we were always done. Either I had the re- instruments for those jets, or I didn't. And if I didn't have what they needed, they had to bingo to the beach, Miramar, San Diego, North Island, somewhere, and I was done for the night. So by 1 in the morning, I was always done. Beautiful place for a single guy. Chow Hall open 24-7. Christian, I was saved at the time, 3,500 people. Nowhere to go. I had them right there on the ship. They could not jump overboard if I started witnessing. Target rich environment for a young Christian in the Navy Marine Corps. 3,500 troops. But one of the things I love to do as a new believer was late at night when flight ops shut down, that old gray behemoth of a ship, it would go quiet as it plied the ocean off the coast of California. It'd go battle lantern red, and everybody would turn in for the night. Rather, just a few fire watches here or there, a few guys watching. That whole ship just seemed to exhale as she plowed the ocean off the coast. I used to love to go in the hangar deck, forward into the bow, right where the bow of that vessel filled out in the fullness of the ship. I used to love to go off on a little sponson that hung right out over the water about 25 feet above the ocean I closed that dog-eared hatch and there on that three foot by four foot piece of steel sitting out I get down there and I'd look at the, the bow of that vessel slicing the ocean I'd watch the moon rise and I just feel really really small you have never felt so tiny as when you're sitting out looking at a huge ocean as a little speck of humanity hanging to the side of a vessel cutting that thing. And I just spent an hour or two praying, spending time with the Lord, you know, communicating with my Father. This thought came to me one time, I wonder what would happen if, if all of a sudden this rogue wave came along, the ship lurched and think, I went overboard. I thought that, you know, two in the morning. What would I experience? I actually ran through that thought. The first thing I knew I'd experience, I would experience the icy water just shocking me. 57, 58 degrees doesn't sound cold, but man, that is icy cold. And I would be shocked by the temperature. And then I would be literally pinned against the tens of thousands of tons of displacement, unable to get away. I'd be pinned against the hull of that ship and rolled along her as she slid past me in the moonlight. And then those house-sized propellers would force me underwater. And if I survived all that, I'd come sputtering and bobbing behind that vessel, a half mile behind, and I'd watch her slow disappear on the horizon and there in that inky ocean I would know one thing for sure it wouldn't matter what kind of health I had it wouldn't matter if I was physically fit or not it wouldn't matter that I was a young man not an old man it would only be an hour or two and those icy waters would numb me and kill me My only hope would be somebody knew where I was. Somebody heard my cry as I went overboard. Somebody sounded that alarm. Man, overboard! Threw out a lifeline, launched the choppers, turned that vessel around and came looking for me. That'd be my only hope as they came over there to rescue me. And if that really happened, and it still does in our Navy and Marine Corps and Coast Guard, 
If I got pulled from what I knew was a certain death, let me tell you something. The next time I heard, man overboard, oh, I'd be the first one at the rail. I'd be the first one to sound the alarm, throw the lifeline. Y'all with me? Because I would know exactly the peril that individual was in. You know, there was a day you and I were dying in our sea of sin. We didn't have enough righteousness to rescue ourselves. We needed a Savior. And someone saw where we were. And someone cared enough to offer to us exactly who could save us. They risked a friendship. They risked our wrath. I remember Lance Corporal Ike Mills. How angry I was when he asked me if I died today. Was I 100% sure I'd go to heaven? I remember how I treated him. It was very dishonorable. But nonetheless, we offered him, and every one, or we were offered him, and every one of us that are saved now, you know what? We're on this gospel ship. And every day our vessel plies the flotsam and jetsam of humanity, men and women, boys and girls, that do not have our Savior. And I mean this. The least we can do is offer him who they need. The least we can do is care enough to throw a lifeline. Because tonight, if you're saved, you have who they need, and they need who you have. We don't offer them a religion. Everybody's got that. We offer them a redeemer. We offer them a relationship in a person who has power over death, hell, and the grave. And we are not the way he is. We point them to the one who can rescue them. And I mean this with all my heart. Shame on us if we at least don't offer him. And let me say tonight, there's a lot of ways to offer him. There's a lot of ways every time somebody offers him, they're in essence, they're throwing a rope. For a moment, they're throwing a rope, a line to somebody who needs Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of ways to offer him. I remember Pastor Gary Prisk. He and I became very close as the years rolled on. And uh, Brother Prisk, one day later in his life, uh, he and I were talking, and he was reflecting on the first, one, of the, one of the first times he had somebody ever offer him the gospel after he got saved. He was in Los Angeles. He was going to Pacific Coast Bible Baptist College. And one Saturday afternoon, there was a knock on the door of his apartment where he and Miss Cheryl were. And he thought, well, who in the world's here on a Saturday afternoon? And he looked out. He said, there was, a, there was a preacher standing there. He said he had the Bible open to John 3, 16. He said, excuse me, sir, could you go ahead and read that verse for me out loud? He held the Bible up with his finger on John 3, 16. Brother Pris said, sure, he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That preacher looked at him and said, do you believe that? And Brother Pris said, well, I, I did. I got saved just a year and a half ago. Praise the Lord, he says. You tell somebody what Jesus did for you, and you pray for me, brother, because I'm out telling others what he can do for them. And Brother Pris said, he went next door to the next apartment, and he knocked on the door. And Brother Pris said, I kind of leaned over and watched. The lady answered the door. He said, excuse me, ma'am, could you read that verse for me out loud? And from door to door, house to house, he had him read John three sixteen out loud and ask him if they believed that. You say, well, what was he doing? He's offering the Savior. He's throwing a lifeline. That was his way. Amen. There's a church down in Florida, <laughs> Pastor Hankins. I remember the first time we met him was a Christmas get-together. A kid sang for his Christmas get-together for his people. He invited us to come preach a sermon series 
the next year. And we did. And when I got there, I'm going to tell you something. That is the oldest aged church for membership I've ever seen in my life. If you were 50, you were in the nursery. I'm telling you the truth, man. It was rest home under a steeple. It was unbelievable. I'm just telling you, it's just a lot of elderly people. And uh, Brother Hankins, I'm looking around after a service or two. I said, uh, bro, I said, uh, you're very unique demographic here. He says, oh, he said, I know. Just a gracious man. He said, we get those young families in, you know, but after a couple of weeks, they kind of look around and go, and they come up to me and say, preacher, we love you, and you got some sweet people, but... You know, he says, I just send him down to that little preacher boy 15 minutes down the road. I built half his church for him, you know. <laughs> Gracious man. Our children sang that song Greg Stiff wrote called Give Me, Give Me Souls Lest I Die. I was sitting on a platform and I watched Pastor Hankins sitting in the front row, tears just streaming down his face as he listened to the kids sing about concern for souls. You say, well, they can't really get out. What do they do? Telemarket. Get a phone book and call people. Say, hey, if you died today, you're 100% sure you'd go to heaven to be with the Lord? <gasps> Somebody says, oh, they could get mad. You know, wouldn't that make a story in heaven? Could you imagine a campfire of tribulation stories we would tell when we get to heaven? Well, Paul, what'd you go through? I was shipwrecked. I was left for dead. I mean, what did you imperil for the gospel, getting the gospel out to be? Oh, and then, you know, you hear all this, and then come to us. Oh, I got hung up on. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, if there's a shadow in heaven, I think I'm going to be looking for it then when it comes to war stories. Seriously. One of my ways is the chick track. This was your life. It deals with sin. That's the only one I use of his. I like it. I use the Corvette. Man, Starbucks, target-rich environment, Mars Hill of our day. Three opportunities today to witness to people about the Lord, to invite them to our meeting and give them tracts today. And all three asked me for that. What is that? And it opened the door up and I began to deal with them. The car is a way. The movie we filmed is a way. That's some of my ways. And I've actually had people say to me, well... I don't like your way. Fair enough. What's your way? Well, you know, I, I, I really don't have a way. Then I like my way better than your way. Because <laughs> my way offers them the way, the truth, and the life. And let's be clear about something here. Everybody's wired differently. I ran a sales team for years in Alaska. Everybody's wired differently. My guys, there were some men and women, they loved to use the telephone. Y'all with me? I mean, that, that was their tool. They loved to communicate with the phone. You couldn't get them to knock a door. They, they would rather die than see somebody face-to-face. Then there was another group that loved to talk door-to-door, but you couldn't get them on a telephone. By the way, that was Jeff Bickish. I did all of Jeff Bickish's telemarketing for him. He paid me for every demo I sat for him. He hated the phone. You say, but I don't even like those. Well, then write letters. Y'all with me? And mark it well. Our responsibility is not to win them. I mean that with all my heart. Now, I understand that, that that process takes place, but our responsibility is to warn them. The sole winner is the Holy Spirit of God. You don't convince American. Proud Americans steeped in their self-righteousness and religion and self-sufficiency, you're going to convince them they're going to hell and need Jesus. You're nuts. The Spirit of God does that. You warn them. 
He wins them. And if I go out to try to tell somebody the word of God and they slam a door in my face, that's not the prepared heart. No problem. One day, through the circumstances of life, they'll look. But today wasn't today. You with me? And so I'm going to ask you. Remember we said in this conference, say yes to the Lord. You here tonight as a Christian and you don't have a way to offer him? Why don't tonight you pray and ask God to show you how to have your way? Writing, calling, knocking doors, getting involved in it, whatever. This world is going to hell in a handbasket, and we watch it float by and do nothing. And mark it well, Spurgeon was very, very, very direct. He said every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Those are hard words. But if we floated by and we're headed for hell and someone offered us Savior, we know who they need. And the least we can do is offer him. Find a way tonight. Amen? And then trust God to bless the sowing of the seed like any farmer would. You don't have to win them, but you do have to warn them and care enough to do just that. And by the way, as I close, don't try to figure out who will grab him when you offer him. You'll never figure it out. I remember getting saved January of 1980 as a young Marine. The Spirit of God hung me over hell by my little rope of self-righteousness that I carefully braided all my life. My religion, all the things I did and didn't do, I braided that thing, and I felt sure it was enough to keep me out of hell. But as the Spirit of God began to use the Word of God in a Monday night Bible study, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, Lest any man should boast, the Spirit of God lit my little rope of self-righteousness on fire. I'm sitting in that Monday Night Bible study looking at everything I'd carefully done all my life to get me through and bribe me into God's heaven, and it wasn't going to do it. I realized that I was holding on to something wrong, and as it was burning through, I thought to myself, well, what should I do? I mean, what, what, what's my option? I mean, I'm a good kid, and I've been to church every Sunday, and what could I possibly do? And as I was mulling on that, it's like God offered me another rope called the blood of Jesus Christ and everything he'd done for me 2,000 years ago. But I remember as I looked over, it was out of reach. I couldn't keep holding on to me and try him. God was forcing me to choose me and my works or what he offered through his son and his works. And I'm struggling in the decision. And finally, I said, well, I know mine aren't good enough. Man, I know that's not good enough. I don't have a choice. And in my heart, I let loose everything I'd ever trusted in, everything I'd ever done, everything I'd ever hoped would please God. And I just jumped across and grabbed what God did to please himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And it held He held. I didn't even know everything that happened, but my faith found a resting place that night. No more to wander. And it didn't rest in me. It rested in something God did for me 2,000 years ago in the person of his son. My faith found a resting place. I got saved. And I called the next day to tell my parents. I was raised in a home that went to church every Sunday, a farming home, a farming family, Midwest America and my dad and mom and my twin brother Doug my younger brother Ron and my younger brother sister I knew they didn't have that faith that I now had and so I called up the next day to share the wonderful news that I'd been saved my mother answered the phone she's the all-american mom and as as we get to talk she says what's up Dave I said hey I just want to let you know mom I got saved 
And this all-American mom, public school teacher, this is what she said. I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, well, uh, uh, that, uh, uh, um, <clears throat> well, that's good, Dave. That's good. We're, we're, we're happy for you. I found out afterwards, my father asked her. She hung the phone up. He was in the den sitting next door. He said, was that Dave? Yep. What's up with Dave? Mom said, I think he got religion. <laughs> to which my sage old father said, well, just be glad the kid's not on drugs. <laughs> Truth. I was wound tight. Amen. <laughs> I was wound tight. And dad's saying, it could be worse. We can handle that, you know. German family, Yavul. But they got on my heart. And five months later, I came home on leave, May 1980. I'd left the home lost. I came back saved. As I stepped off that jet, Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport, back then the family could meet you up at the gate. I stepped off wearing a uniform that tricked a lot of young men to join the Marine Corps. I was proud of the nation, you know. I walked off in those dress blues. But I was also carrying something you often don't see a soldier, sailor, airman, or Marine carry. The Word of God tucked under my arm. I was proud of my Savior in the kingdom of heaven. And I came with one mission in mind, and that was to show my lost family how to be saved. I remember coming off that jet, man, that was yesterday. There was Dad, shake his hand, don't give him hugs, he ain't into that junk, you know. Shake his hand, like your haircut, son. That's the best I got right there. Mom, she'd take a hug, sissy take a hug. Kid brother Ron, middle linebacker for the football team, brainiac, man, never even tried to study and was salutatory of his class. Ugh. Twin brother Doug, and he eventually followed me into the core a year, year or two later. But I remember as we all fanned out and started to head to baggage claim there, they all fanned out. It was, you know, it was like that Norman Rockwell print, you know, that soldier coming home for the first time. I was the first one to leave home. This was a big deal. Dave's coming back, and they were just all looking at me. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw my kid brother Ron. He saw that Bible. I don't know why he didn't see it earlier. He saw that thing. And out of the corner of my eye, here's what Ron did. He shook his head like this and went, oh. I knew what he was thinking. Oh, Dave, you freak. That's what he was thinking. But that night, after we had supper, I called the family into the living room. I said, you all sit down. I got to share something with you you've never heard before. We never knew the truth. Been to church, carried the Bible, knew it was the Word of God, but we never, never understood how to make peace with our God. And I took a big two-foot by three-foot piece of cardboard, got me a black magic marker, a red magic marker, and I used the navigator's way of declaring the gospel. There's a cliff here, and man's on that cliff, and there's a big gulf of sin, and I wrote the word sin in the middle, and over here's the other cliff with God on it, and man is separated from God by sin, and man's trying to get across to God. And for an hour and a half, I showed him how man, he tries to build bridges to get through religion and self-righteousness. Nah, none of them's good enough. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Titus 3, five shoot it down but god provided someone special to get us over to him and where that word s-i-n was sin i spelled the word j-e-s-u-s and built a cross and preached the principle of substitution the passover lamb and jesus became our and for an hour and a half i showed with him how to be saved and how to make peace with god through christ alone faith alone and at the end of that hour and a half i took my big old mark i drew a line down the middle i said now if you all died right now what side of that cross would you be on and I just left it with them. I ain't into that one, two, three, pray after me stuff. I'm just sorry. I'm just not. I just feel the Spirit of God loves them more than I do. And he knows how to deal with them. 
I'll invite him to respond, but I just, that's just, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm trying to confuse anybody, but I'm just not, you're saved by believing, you're not saved by praying, okay? I'm just, that's what saves you. So, no. Oh. And I just knew my family, and we're going to get pressured in anything. Engineers and educators, no way. So I just left them with that and committed it to prayer. Within a year, my mother got saved. I had the privilege of baptizing her as a young preacher boy. Within a year and a half, my twin brother Doug got saved. He's head deacon at our home church now down in Texas. My sister made a profession of faith and started Bible studies up in the library. My kid brother Ron got saved a year and a half later. He married an independent Baptist preacher's daughter. He thinks I'm a nut with his Corvette. He thinks, I, he thinks I've gone off my rocker. He, he is so chasing God. It'll just, oh, he just totally obsessively serving God with his wife and child. And eight years later, under old-fashioned preaching, I watched my proud father who read through his Bible twice to try to figure it out, get saved in the middle of a conference. Go back to my home in Minnesota. When your ways up the steps to the room that I slept in with my twin brother Doug, there you'll find perched on that desk my desk in my bedroom a two foot by three foot piece of cardboard my mother saved it all those years as a stone of remembrance for the first time our family ever heard the gospel clearly presented you will never regret getting saved I mean that with all my heart and you will never regret offering him for you never know who will grab him a prayer for you tonight is simple. I pray you're saved. I pray you realize your problem. It's sin. You recognize his person, Jesus only, plus or minus nothing. He's the only mediator between God and man. And then you receive the provision. You believe on him to save you from your sin. I pray you're saved. And if you are saved, I pray you're offering him to others as well. For we have exactly who they need, and they need who we have. May you be redeemed tonight, and may you be a part of this rescue and recovery operation for God's first great desire is salvation for all. Amen? Let's stand and commit these thoughts to the Lord tonight. His heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Just a moment. In the Baptist church, we always have an opportunity to respond. You don't have to, but we invite you to. And if you're here tonight and you cannot say with 100% certainty, that heaven is your home. If you cannot say in your heart, I know that heaven is my home, 100% sure, then my invitation, first of all, is to you. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed.